Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Today, Edward and Nate talk about 1967. The year of Monterey pop, when the Beatles lost Brian Epstein and gained the Maharishi, Brian Wilson blew it, and Otis Redding died. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and I'm joined again by Ed Ward for the third of our eight conversations about his book, The History of Rock and Roll, Volume 2, 1964 to 1977, The Beatles, The Stones, and the Rise of Classic Rock. Ed, welcome back. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yes, it's good to have you. And this is a fun one. This is Chapter 3. You called it, This is the Love Crowd, right? And we'll get to that quote before the end. But there's another image in the chapter I want to start with, and that's the rat entering the snake. Tell us what you meant by that. Well, after World War II, there was a a large increase in the uh, amount of births uh, in the United States, and um, there were a lot more babies born, and uh, those babies, of course, mostly grew up. And so their presence in the demographic was significant in terms of the entertainment they were after. They were after rock and roll, and um, they um, were present in enough large enough numbers that they were able to enforce that that desire for a particular kind of music and um, that meant that that particular kind of music was selling better than other forms so and then the, the image is of, of a, a snake swallowing a rat and the bulge appearing in the snake's body as the rat moves down towards the digestive process and fittingly enough for 1967, it's close to the head of the snake. So there's a lot of, of head manipulation and, and mind uh, expansion going on through this period. But the record company executives, they see this coming, although they don't quite know what to do with it. Absolutely. The, the great thing about the record industry is it was never able to – understand what it was doing and um, because of that a lot of good stuff snuck in sort of under the wire and surprised the powers that be by selling 
But at the same time, a lot of stuff that was sort of powers that be approved was selling at the same time. You had Herb Alpert, what you call his new brand of middle of the road MOR. You had the association. The pop machinery was in gear and sometimes it was clicking. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was important that the business as a whole was uh, was making money and able to continue and to spend money on, on new talent. But even though the records are selling and, you know, a lot of the machinery is, is oiled up and, and clicking, AM radio is really starting to struggle with these new songs and new lyrics. Well, the problem is a lot of it was really long. You had, you know, Dylan did uh, like a Rolling Stone, which was the longest single ever released. Um, and uh, then along come the doors with Light My Fire, which was like eight minutes long. And the thing is that both of those performances, the fans wanted to hear the the entirety of, of the performance. Um, the Doors record didn't sound right, cut into a three-minute excerpt. And then for some so artists... They- like the Rolling Stones, their lyrics, they had to switch the A-sides and the B-side of the major single at the beginning of the year. Yeah, they um, the the songs were definitely changing, and, and uh, the, the kind of lyrics that people were writing were both more frank and more abstract, which were, I guess would be the, the two te- uh, trends at this point. And, and that's what the consumers wanted. And so, you know, you'd have something like the Rolling Stones having to go on Ed Sullivan and change Let's Spend the Night Together to Let's Spend Some Time Together, even though Mick Jagger's rolling in his eyes, he still makes the change. And they flip the record, so instead of that being the single in America, it's, it's you know, the Brian Jones recorder showpiece, Ruby Tuesday, which is a very mellow song, but still with lots of subversive messages. I feel a certain amount of sympathy for the AM radio programmer of that time, because even something like the association's Along Comes Mary is chock full of drug references. Right. It's true. I mean, it it almost became a a game of hide and seek listening to the radio and trying to figure out who was turning on, man. And, and even somebody like Paul Revere and the Raiders, you know, doing uh, kicks, you know, a Brill Building teen anthem all the way, claiming to be an anti-drug song, but sometimes just even talking about drugs set off the censors. So, um, you know, it's just sort of a crazy time. And and AM's difficulty in processing the rock revolution creates this opportunity for FM radio. That was part of the uh, part of the impulse there. The other part was that a lot of stations maintained an FM part of the spectrum. And um, they didn't really use it or else they used it to duplicate their AM broadcasting. But during the 1950s, the possibility of, of broadcasting in stereo, multiplex, came along. And also the nature of the... Um, of the signal of FM made it more high fidelity. So you got better fidelity and and, um, the possibility of broadcasting in stereo. It was a, it was a really tempting thing. And then the FCC 
went and screwed everything up by, excuse me, by saying that if you owned an FM analog to your your um, spectrum, you could only have a certain amount of programming duplicate the AM programming, and the rest of it had to be original programming. So these people were stuck with radio stations that they were going to have to change. So if you had to change it, what better way to do it than to see if you can grab some of this um, new music, particularly in the evening, because these the new audience seemed to stay up later and, uh, and have the radio on a lot more than the AM radio was. And this FM radio innovation is kind of a coastal thing at first. starts off in New York City with WOR AM, creating WOR FM. That's a very different channel. Uh, later, WNE New, W New in New York, but also in San Francisco, KSAN and KMPX are freaking out a little bit. Well, they were low-rated stations that figured they didn't have anything to lose, and um, I'm trying to remember what um, I mean. WOR was was a major broadcaster. Uh, WNEW uh, was a, a major broadcaster, but KMPX wasn't. It was just this sort of loser radio station that nobody listened to. Um, and Tom Donahue, who was the king of AM radio in um, San Francisco, who had already joined forces with the uh, Sly Stone to run a record company called Autumn. He he realized that he was tired of playing the hits and being Big Daddy. Uh, he used to uh, start his program by saying, it's Big Daddy Tom Donahue, sponsored by Clearasil. I'm here to mess up your mind and clear up your face. <laughs> and, and that was... That, that was the, the kind of thing that he was getting real tired of. Plus... Here he was hearing all this new music, thanks to his his record label, but not really able to play a lot of it on the air. And so when a bunch of people got together and decided what they wanted to do was get into this FM thing, he went, wait, I I can do this. I'm a radio professional. I can can figure out how to get the license and and how to um, get the programming together and all of a sudden, there were these people at um, KMPX who were broadcasting, quote-unquote, freeform radio. And then KSAN, or KSAN, Jive 95, um, was another AM station that was largely foreign-language broadcasting, inclu- including a lot of Vietnamese programming, which certainly couldn't have been doing them a whole lot of good because... In 1967, there weren't a lot of Vietnamese in the United States um, because of the war that, that we didn't have that many immigrants from uh, from Vietnam. And so they they took that, um, a bunch of people took that station over. And for a while, these two progressive FM stations were going head to head. And it was, it was causing records that, didn't even have a chance on AM radio, top 40 radio. These other uh, records were selling, you know, in big albums. You know, you, you buy a single, that's 98 cents. You buy an album, that's $4.98. So obviously you can figure out which one you wanted to sell the most of. 
And one of the strange things about this period historically is that the weirdness is kind of starting at the top with the Beatles, with their apocryphal single Strawberry Fields Forever backed with Penny Lane or vice versa. I mean, you know, the word that things are weird is coming from the biggest pop band on earth. Right. Uh, the, the Beatles actually also pioneered by um, <clears throat> appearing on top of the pops in Britain, not live, but with uh, films that, that they had made um, with a Swedish director uh, illustrating or, or not illustrating so much as expressing those two records. Um, and that was their last appearance on Ed Sullivan. The Beatles stayed home. You know, they just sent these two, uh, two movies to Ed Sullivan and that was their appearance. Yeah. So they're so, kind of inventing an MTV 20 years ahead of their time. Well, the rock video was that, yeah, became a thing when people could afford to do it. The Beatles, of course, could because they had more money than anybody. But, um, yeah, they they, uh, they invented the rock video with those two, which are still a lot of fun to watch. Yeah. You, know, you can find them on YouTube. Those those are still hip videos. And, and here's another song I'm going to cue up that followed quickly in the wake of the Beatles' psychedelic expansion. This is another English band, a band that wasn't a band when the song was recorded, but pulled one together quickly. This is Procol Harum, and their hit, Wider Shade of Pale. Bach-influenced hit Wider Shade of Pale. This is a song that John Lennon had blasting out of his psychedelic Rolls-Royce all throughout the summer of 1967. You can hear in it that, you know, Phil Spector's last single with Ike and Tina Turner might have been a flop in the States, and Pet Sounds might have been misunderstood, but in England, they were listening. Yeah, and that was because there wasn't this variety of pop uh, radio stations you had bbc one bbc two you know that that was it and there were pirate stations broadcasting from the um the waters around england uh using transmitters that could pretty much blanket the united kingdom and, and that was another place where freeform radio was starting uh was uh, with these these pirate stations, Radio London and uh, Radio Luxembourg, which actually was in Luxembourg, um, they were far more popular among the kids than than the BBC was. For sure. And one of the points you make in this chapter is that the scene is still regional. And London, since we're talking about the Beatles and Procol Harum, you've got kind of multiple scenes. You've still got the mods with represented by the small faces and the who the kinks are kind of changing though. The kinks are going from, you know, the hard rock kinks that, that blew up in 65 and 66. And now they're suddenly becoming this very English kinks, partly because they're banned from the States. 
Yeah, well, they knew they had to sell in England because of that. And, and uh, they they also, I don't know, I, I think Ray Davies always had a little bit of, I hate to say chauvinism, but this weird cultural patriotism in his system and, and dealing with things that were uniquely British, you know, tea and, and things like that, that he was able to slip into these songs and um, have a huge have huge hits with the water, Waterloo uh, uh, Sunset. Waterloo Sunset. You you really have to know London in order to get that song all the way. Yeah, and and Dead End Streets talking about the Sunday Joint and stuff like that. That's just way over the heads of of American fans. And meanwhile, there's an underground scene percolating in London, sort of epitomized by Sid Barrett's Pink Floyd. Yeah, Pink Floyd was the uh, the house band at um, at one of the big fights, psychedelic venues. The in UFO London. Club, yeah. UFO Spelled Club. UFO, well, yeah. we have to we have to um, distinguish what the Brits mean by a club. The UFO Club was a club in that it was like, say, the Beatles fan club. You could join it, but it didn't necessarily give you any privileges. Um, the UFO UFO met at the Roundhouse, which was just that, a, a roundhouse for um, trains that had been decommissioned and was now lying empty. And there was this huge, huge, huge structure that sort of gave itself over to uh, improvisation as to where the stage was, what what you did with the presence of the stage, light shows showing up there, uh, imported from, uh, at least the idea imported from San Francisco. And um, so, yeah, the, the the Pink Floyd was the uh, was the house band, although there were many many others. And and one of those others was an American import, uh, a young African American and Native American man uh, from Seattle who'd been on the Chitlin circuit for a couple of years. We talked about him on the last episode, and he has a sort of chance meeting with Chess Chandler, the bassist, the soon to be ex bassist of the Animals in Greenwich Village and ends up flying back to London with Chas and they build a band around Jimmy and things hit right away. Well, Jimmy was in front of a band called Jimmy James and the Blue Flames. And what they were basically doing was backing up John Hammond Jr. as a blues band. And um, Hendrix was really not that impressed with Hammond and, and got the Blue Flames gigs on their own and that that's what Chaz Chandler walked into was uh, the Cafe Hua. Um, I remember talking to Mike Bloomfield about that and, and how the um, Paul Butterfield band was playing and uh, across the street at the Gaslight and during the break Mike would run across McDougal Street and, and go into the Cafe Hua just to watch what Hendrix was doing. And he, he was massively impressed, as anybody who was really looking for talent would have been. Um, Chess Chandler decided that he didn't want to play bass for the animals anymore. He wanted to become a manager and a producer. And the best place to look for talent was the United States. He flew to New York and bang, there it was, right in Greenwich Village, five nights a week, right in front of his face. So he 
grabbed Jimmy and said, come on, boy, I'll make you a star. And he did. Yes, he did. And in America, the biggest scene, kind of the legacy champion is still Los Angeles, which is big. You know, the birds blew up out of there coming off the Whiskey Go-Go and the Sunset Strip in 65, 66. The Mamas and the Papas came to town around that same time, blew folk rock, blew the doors off folk rock. And speaking of the doors, you know, you had bands like Love and The Seeds, but a new band fronted by Jim Morrison really makes a mark. Well, the the doors were popular because they had a charismatic front man. Um, although there are people who saw love in, in their glory and say that Arthur Lee was just as great a front man as Jim Morrison. His problem being that he was black and uh, and also necessarily... refused to leave town. It wouldn't tour. Well, that was he wasn't that ambitious. He, he was more into sitting up in the canyon and gobbling acid. So um, they, they wouldn't even go to school, you know. Here's a ballroom scene, two giant ballrooms just waiting for talent. And Arthur couldn't do that. He, he just he didn't see any reason to do it. And his band's struggle with heroin also impeded that. But, you know, and then the seeds blow up with Pushing Too Hard, which is – um, you know, a garage rock classic going to be one of the anchors of Lenny Kay's Nuggets compilation in a few years. But Sky Saxon, not quite Jim Morrison. And the Seeds, you know, the motto of the Seeds is two great chords, five great albums. But they still right. made their mark. <laughs> yeah, they, they made a mark, but it's interesting that interest in them has only recently surfaced because really it was just two chords and, it, and one really melody didn't have any, <laughs> right they didn't have any range and that, that was not destined to um, make a career love on the other hand uh, Johnny Eccleson and um, and Arthur Lee wrote lyrics uh, melodies just amazing melodies and um, they managed a half an album uh, that, that um, the Capo, their second album, really, yeah, the Capo, yeah, that, that really showed them doing something that nobody had ever done. But they were so unstable that Jack Holtzman, who was producing it, gave them a bunch of acid and, and threw them into the studio and let them jam for half an hour. And then that's the second side of the album. Is this long unfocused jam he thought he'd never get any more songs out of them but he was wrong arthur retreated to his little place in the canyon and gobbling acid and suddenly had this vision that he was about to die so he wrote all these songs and came down from the canyon and recorded them and, and that became one of the great albums of the period love forever changes but unfortunately, they can't tour off of it because of utter personal collapse and the record company loses support of them. So, you know, that kind of fell on deaf ears in a year when many people were putting out masterpieces. And the Doors, meanwhile, got through this sort of quest for a hit single, push, you know, break on through flops. But then they edit down Light My Fire, and suddenly Jim Morrison is the biggest rock star in America, at least. Well, he was one of them. There, there were others. <laughs> yeah, lots um, of competition for sure. 
I, I'm I'm sorry. I'm just not a Jim Morrison fan. <laughs> yeah, and, and and that's understandable. But um, I I am not going to apologize for it. But I definitely can see the the downside of the Doors. But if you can buy the Doors, um, they were definitely something new at at the time, and and they were sort of like a seeds that could play. Um, not yeah, brilliantly, yeah. but well enough to sort of fake it in this context. And one other band before we leave LA that we should talk about is Buffalo Springfield, which is a super group that we talked about Neil Young and Rick James's ill-fated minor birds in Detroit. But Neil takes his bass player, goes down to LA, meets up with Stephen Stills and future Poco leader Richie Fure, and the Buffalo Springfield is is suddenly a contender. Yeah, they they were the first great country rock band and and some of that had to do with the fact that they had um, two veterans of the folk scene, Stephen Stills and, and Neil Young in the band, who were sort of going head to head, you know, writing great songs and, and with, a, with a band that could play them. So uh, it, was a, it was a pretty heady time to be around the Los Angeles. And it was also a heady and time. They, they would. Go ahead. They would also tour. No, they would also tour. Which, yeah, um, and they and they toured hard and and um, but they again struggled with with personnel difficulties because of the mercurial Neil Young. But in '67, yeah. it's all going right. Yeah, and and and, and good. Well, I was going to jump around regions a little bit. It's logical to go up to San Francisco, and we'll definitely head up there. But but first, I want to talk about a smaller town that's kind of a little bit off the radar for most of the people on the Sunset Strip, I would imagine. But Muscle Shoals, Alabama is starting to get discovered. And a guy named Jerry Wexler of Atlanta Records brings his new uh, big star that he's just signed from Columbia down to Muscle Shoals, and things happen. Yeah, the, um, he brought Aretha Franklin down there and because he knew that uh, the band, the house band at Muscle Shoals was um, really excellent at doing head arrangements and, and knocking out hits. He just knew they, they didn't have anybody with the gargantuan star power that Aretha had. Um, it was also a pretty well-kept secret that most of the Muscle Shoals band were white, and um, that caused a bit of a blow up. Some I, I don't know exactly exactly what the details are, but um, Aretha's husband Ted and, and one of the trumpet players got into a fist fight, and uh, he grabbed her, and they went back to New York, and they only had about two songs in the can and Wexler was just apoplectic, but he knew that this audacious signing of his was on the line. So he flew the Muscle Shoals guys up to New York city and um, continued the session there under his leadership. And let's hear that first song that they recorded in Muscle Shoals, the one of the two they managed to get down. And this is uh, Aretha Franklin's, I never loved a man the way I love you. i 
And that was Aretha Franklin, backed up by the famed studio band, doing I Never Loved a Man with Spooner Oldham on organ. And you can hear from the first notes that this is new and this is happening, and radio and the public responded immediately. Yeah, it was an incredible hit. And it was interesting that in the middle of psychedelia and, and all this searching and, and improvisation with lyrics and forms that um, something as straightforward as this could get that get that big on the radio. But it was also pretty much Teenage America's most recent encounter with the black gospel tradition, which Aretha had come out of. And um, I think that reached a lot of people that uh, were ready for it. Absolutely. And, you know, Muscle Shoals had been hitting with Percy Sledge around the same time. Wilson Pickett had been basically booted out of stacks in Memphis and had to come down to Muscle Shoals, but he's still cutting big hits with Atlantic. And stacks up in Memphis, you know, one of the things you mentioned is that the scene is regional and it's integrated, and probably no place was more integrated than Stax Records around this time. Well, I would say that uh, Muscle Shoals was more integrated, but uh, the fact that the core of the Stax house band was Booker T and the MGs, which were four guys, two white and two black, um, who played together like one person controlling you know, all the instruments, they were, they were an incredible band. And, and once again, they had a knack for arrangements and, and ways of looking at things. You listen to the Booker T uh, and the MG's albums from that time, and you'll hear songs you never want to hear again played brilliantly, you know, like Summertime. The, the version of Summertime that they recorded is unbelievable and yet it's been recorded millions of times before or, or a song like um more which was the um theme song for mondo cane a, a weird italian movie that they just grabbed it and they said oh we can do something with this and they did absolutely and at the same time they're backing up sam and dave who are going on this run with the songwriting team isaac hayes and david porter and just blowing it out with massive hits like Soul Man and Hold On, I'm a Coming. There were so many people recording at Stacks that there were really great performers who basically slipped between the, the, the lines that, that are mostly forgotten now. You know, there, there, was, um, there was Mabel John, who uh, had what I think is one of the greatest uh, soul records of all time, Your Good Thing is About to End, has this menacing horn chart in it that um, underlines the uh, the message of the lyrics. Um, and, and yet it wasn't a big hit. Um, I guess it was a and b hit. She wasn't even really um, signed to Stax, apparently, because she was working, um, she was from Detroit, and she was working some with Motown. She was, uh, she was Barry Gordy's chauffeur for a while. <laughs> um, and, the, and Mot- uh, 
And speaking of Motown, you know, they had this incredible year, like you described last time, that basically the 65, 66 tracks of the complete Motown singles sound like a greatest hits album or two greatest hits album. And in 67, they're still putting out incredible songs. Like the Temptations have their last run with David Ruffin uh, singing lead vocals on songs like I Wish It Would Rain. And you've got multiple versions of I Heard It Through the Grapevine, first by Gladys Knight and the Pips, and then later by Marvin Gaye, that are really incredible, absolutely at the forefront of everything that's going on at this time. But all the same, Motown's a little bit down, and part of that has to do with Holland, Dozier Holland going on strike towards the end of the year. Right. They, they, were, um, they were a rare songwriter-producer entity. And um, Barry had this weird... I mean, Barry Gordy's innovation was that he had been he had been working in the auto factories and he knew how assembly lines worked and he sort of applied that way of doing business to uh, making records and it worked uh on the other hand anybody who's worked in a, in a uh, auto factory will tell you that um sometimes workers get unhappy on the line and they go on strike. And, and that's just what Holland Dozier and Holland did. They began to look into the business end of what they were involved with and realized they weren't getting nearly what other songwriters, you know, white or black were getting. And so they stopped producing. And, and that yeah, and Motown ultimately recovers from this, but there's definitely a feeling, and that in combination with the emergence of soul, real soul, like Aretha Franklin and Otis Redding at Stax and others, that Barry Gordy had always been resistant to, in combination with the psychedelic movement and the move to albums, Motown had to adjust, and we'll talk in upcoming chapters about how they did that. But in the meantime... There's another couple of regional scenes in country music where Bakersfield, California is still giving Nashville a run for the money and and the you know Buck Owens and, and the Buckaroos are still going great guns, but there's a new a new hero has emerged in Bakersfield in the person of Merle Haggard. Right. Haggard had, had been playing around the uh, the scene in Bakersfield for a long time and uh, had made a couple of unsuccessful records there. But um, because the, the head of Capitol Records was himself a country musician, um, it was fairly easy for people from that scene to get signed because they were basically in suburban LA. Uh, Capitol was based in Los Angeles. And um, it was easy to go out and see them at clubs like the Palomino up in North Hollywood, or uh, the blackboard in um, in Bakersfield, and so uh, Cal California country scene appeared that was a bit more rock oriented. The bands were smaller, and um, and much like a rock band, guitars, um, bass, drums, maybe a, a piano, maybe a steel guitar, very rarely a fiddle. And um, that was exactly the kind of thing that Haggard could step right into and, and did. And he also wrote extraordinary songs, which Buck Owens didn't do. Yeah, I mean, Buck wrote some great hits, but they don't add up to anything. Haggard was building a myth with songs like Mama Tried and Lonesome Fugitive that creates this persona of, of 
a man fighting against the law and, and on the run and just goes on this brilliant run that's going to take a weird pop cultural turn in a couple of years. But for now, Haggard's pretty much sort of the left wing of country music. And meanwhile, Nashville is still countrypolitan. Chet Atkins still in charge. He's still kind of keeping a thumb on Willie Nelson and Waylon Jennings who are struggling to make their mark. But things are getting weird in Nashville too with one of the biggest news stars in country music is a guy named Charlie Pride. What, what made Charlie Pride so different from the usual country star? What made him different? Yeah. <laughs> he was black. He somehow talks his way into into um, opening for Willie Nelson on the road, and uh, Willie listened to him and thought, "Wow, he's good." So uh, he championed him being signed by RCA, believe it or not. And uh, right right out of the box, Charlie had a hit, and people didn't know. That he was uh, that he was black, and in fact, the, the early records he made were labeled "Country Charlie Pride" because his picture on, was on the cover of them. And and at a couple three hits in, then he reveals he's black. And at that point, it was pretty handy for the country music establishment during a time of of massive cultural change in the South to say, "Hey, we're integrating too." And Charlie yeah. goes on to have you know, a Hall of Fame career. A gigantic number of hits. And I guess he's still, you know, playing on the road a little bit, at least. And But, you know, country music had always been a part of black culture, um, partially because of the incredible reach of some of the country music um, programs like the Grand Ole Opry. Um, it wasn't easy. Well, you, you basically didn't hear black music on the radio in the South. And so a lot of um, a lot of black people who grew up in the South knew that you could turn on the radio and hear music, but not their kind of music. So they, um, they uh, uh, were able Adapted. to, I was just thinking, and they sort of adapted. Uh, you, you get you get somebody like Arthur Alexander, or um, or to some extent Percy Sledge, down there in um, in Muscle Shoals, who their their backgrounds, their, what they thought of as good songwriting, was very very heavily influenced by country music, and um, there were some artists like like Bobby Bland, who was from Memphis, who. Um, they put out country albums. You know, there, there were songs that were uh, adaptable to a soul treatment. Absolutely. And and also women in country music are making a big mark with Dolly Parton emerging uh, uh, still under the wing of Porter Wagner at this point, but she's definitely on the scene. Yeah, as was Loretta Lynn, who uh, was the, the girl opening act for the um, – the, the Wilburn brothers were an almost forgotten act now, but she had uh, met them in Oregon, which is where she was living, and uh, they thought she was a, a great voice, and so they put her on the, uh, on the um, their review, and she toured the country and wound up with a uh, contract with their record label, Decca, and began writing these very unusual, you know, they weren't just, you know, girl-boy lyrics anymore. They were pretty hard-hitting. 
literally in the case of Fist City and also her ode to the <laughs> pill uh, down in, in a couple of years. And we'll hear about another young woman who makes a mark with a really interesting lyrical country hit. And I'm referring, of course, to Ode to Billy Joe by Bobby Gentry, which was an unusual song in every sense, partly because it's it's completely written and produced by the performer Bobby Gentry, not produced, but you know, it's her creation, part of an album of songs that she wrote. And she never really does it again. I mean, there's but it's an incredible song that goes on to inspire a Robbie Benson movie and it indicates really symbolizes the lyrical sophistication of country music in 1967. Well, the thing was that what she really had done was she wrote a Tom T. Hall song, although um, it was, as you say, by her. And um, it was something that the country establishment was looking for. Uh, Hall was based in Nashville, and Bobby Gentry was a West Coast act. Um, But... um, Hall's whole shtick was writing story songs, which was considered a, a radical departure from um, the way country music had been done. Absolutely. And here she writes, she writes this song, which even today nobody fully understands what is going on in the song, <laughs> but it's got this great attention to detail. And she won't talk about it. She she's a very mysterious character. I mean, uh, she's um, she's still around, but not performing. She had an immense television show in Britain, but uh, not here in the United States. Hmm. And speaking of unusual departures, now it's time to turn to San Francisco, where the scene uh, we talked in the last episode has been bubbling under. But this this year in '67, bands you know the Grateful Dead signs with Warner Brothers, uh, but it's Jefferson Airplane who breaks through with Surrealistic Pillow. Well, the Jefferson Airplane ha- was the first of the San Francisco crowd to sign a major label deal, which was, as you say, by RCA. And RCA put their muscle behind the airplane from the start. Um, they never had a regional breakout from the first album, but I remember hearing, um, try to remember what come up the years, I think it was one, one of their songs on the radio, just incessantly in Dayton, Ohio. Huh. And it never occurred to me that they weren't giant rock stars anyway. Then along comes Surrealistic Pillow, which the band hated, but it enabled them to record a couple of songs that uh, they thought were pretty good and they were saying inherited from uh, their new lead or their new female singer Grace Slick uh, from her previous band The Great Society and, and uh, yeah so Somebody to Love, White Rabbit those were um, those were very big hits and if you watch the footage of them on Dick Clark that year it's almost like a preview of the Manson family I mean Grace Slick is a radical radical entity in 1967 on television. Well, yeah, she, she was, it was, it was well known that she had gone to prep school with Richard Nixon's daughter. And um, she, she was like this upper middle class kid from San Francisco who was weird and freaky. And, and uh, she was a great, a great front person for the airplane and balanced their other vocalists um, 
Marty Balin. Marty Balin, sorry. Um, yeah, she balanced him off very well. Both the nature of her songs and the way that her her vocals intertwined with his. So they they were um, they were a pretty big deal. Although it's funny that the first single off of Surrealistic Pillow was "You're My Best Friend," which they were arranged to sound like the Mamas and Papas because RCA believed that the Mamas and Papas were what boy-girl groups from California sounded like. So they did this song that they never live, and um, it it flopped. <laughs> yeah, but then Grace Slick comes along with her two massive hit singles and, and makes a mark on the culture. But the culture changes pretty dramatically in the summer when the Beatles follow up their Strawberry Fields Penny Lane single with a full album of psychedelic production madness and beauty that is an immediate massive hit. Well, any album by the Beatles was, was going to be a massive hit. That was pretty much understood, which is possibly the reason that they worked so hard at, um, oh, wait, what was I saying here? Worked so hard at changing. I mean, you know, they they did the opposite of Elvis, and they had kept changing and kept changing. And Rubber Soul and Revolver both had, I mean, they definitely weren't flops. They were both massive sellers, but there was a minute there where Herman's Hermits in 67 were out drawing the, the Beatles on the road. But after people had had time to process the innovations of Rubber Soul and Revolver, they were ready for something big. And yeah. and reading about the reaction to Sgt. Pepper's, I mean, hotel room lobbies filled up with people gathering to listen to it, people playing it out the windows in London in the morning. I mean, it's it seems like there was just this enormous immediate response to Sgt. Pepper's that was different from the enormous response to the Beatles of just a few years earlier. Yeah, it was, it was, as McCartney realized when he named the record, it was a new band that was on this record, a band that was free from the constraint of, of, um, of live performance, no more touring, no more squalid tour buses and, you know, bad auditoriums and stuff like that. The sound problem that the Beatles never really licked um, was now a thing of the past. They could just stay home and make records, which suited the way that they uh, felt like doing things now. And it put this pressure on the bands that had been their peers and the performers that had been their peers in 66 Groups like the Beach Boys, Bob Dylan, and the Rolling Stones are all of a sudden there was this perceived public pressure of how are they going to respond to Sgt. Pepper. And all three of them basically blink. The Beach Boys first, you know, Brian Wilson is in late 66 doing a TV special with Leonard Bernstein and playing previews of his upcoming masterpiece, Smile, but Smile never comes out. Right. Um, once again, too much LSD is the answer here. Um, <laughs> He was he was quite sure he was in touch with the heavens and and God and and all of this and he he, um, he called his his music teen, teenage symphonies for God you know he he really felt that he was he was expressing deep universal truths. Uh, in his music, and the responsibility of doing that 
and of not getting kicked off of his record label at the same time. Um, that was terrible pressure, and he had a nervous breakdown and uh, retreated to his house and continued to write songs, and then he would um, he would call sessions at Gold Star Recordings in his usual studio and Spectre's usual studio, and yet it wasn't coming together. The other Beach Boys, particularly Mike Love, were becoming very, very unhappy with what was going on, but realized they had no alternative. And um, eventually, Brian just disappeared. And the Beach Boys continued to exist. They went on tour with um, other musicians replacing Brian uh, on the bass and and vocals. But um, Brian was just, nobody heard from him. And, And there were all these rumors that there was this album that wasn't going to happen. And what, what the story at the time was that he he was recording um, a suite of the elements, you know, earth, air, fire. And when they did the fire section, he made the um, the studio band wear little toy firemen's helmets. And then he went home satisfied with the result. And a building next door to Gold Star burned down. And that apparently was, at least the story was, that was what drove him over the edge. And the Rolling Stones are foundering on the rocks as well. Not only uh, is there too much LSD, particularly for band founder Brian Jones, but the UK police have discovered the Rolling Stones. Uh, first, they start with busting Donovan, but then they bust Keith Richards and Mick Jagger at a party. One of the Beatles, George Harrison, had just left. Yeah, the, the, they were the news of the world, um, a, a tabloid that no longer exists. Um, they were really on the Rolling Stones. That was their crusade, was to save British youth from these terrible hooligans. And... Um, you know, it's, it's not like it was impossible to find a way to bust them for drugs. <laughs> so, no, definitely not. And, and you know, they produced records like the Beach Boys. The Beach Boys kept making records after the failure of Smile to Appear, but, but nothing that was a grand statement. And the Stones uh, put out an attempted grand statement at the end of the year, but it's anything but an, a fitting answer to uh, Sgt. Pepper's. <laughs> That's exactly what they were trying. I mean, you know, Satanic Majesties was a was a very interesting album. It had some good material on it, but it just didn't have that cohesiveness of Sgt. Pepper. It didn't really well, it 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 wasn't a hit record. It had a couple of really unbearable jam tracks on it. And nobody could make their way through twice. And um, there was a, a lack of pop feeling, I think, was part of what the, the problem was. And they'll sort themselves out in 1968. But in the meantime, Bob Dylan retreats from view after uh, a really chaotic tour of England in 66. And, you know, his double album, Blonde on Blonde, that, that, you know, it was one of these epic masterpieces that 
sets people thinking that, oh, well, Dylan's definitely going to have to respond to Sergeant Peppers. But instead, you know, there's a motorcycle wreck and he retreats to Woodstock and, and uh, the house of his friends, the band, to cut a lot of songs that are not released in 67. Well, he, he kept writing songs. And of course, there was a, a business aspect to this in, in that he had a, a music publishing firm and he realized that he didn't have to go on the road um, or even make records. He, he could write songs for other people. So he, uh, he and the band did work together. I mean, he would show up at the house and they go down to the basement and Garth Hudson had this giant Wallensack um, tape recorder, a real-to-real recorder, and they would do just anything they felt like. And the result of this was a group of songs that are um, referred to as the basement tapes. Um, and the, um, the, the songs went to people like the Birds, a Fairport Convention in England um, recorded a bunch of the Manford Man, uh, third level Asian group. Um, they they did Quinn the Eskimo, and, and people said these are Bob Dylan songs. And the question was, well, where are the rest of them? And it would be years before we'd be able to find that out. Meanwhile, you know, it made the band's reputation. And and that's going to impact the scene a lot more in 68 than it did in 67, although Dylan comes out with John Wesley Harding, which um, is in that same mode. He recorded it in Nashville with a small combo and, and has songs like All Along the Watchtower on it that's going to emerge as a Jimi Hendrix song in 68. But meanwhile, probably the most innovative thing musically going on in the world right now is funk. James Brown uh, retrofits his band once again, brings in a two-drummer combination club, Stubblefield and uh, Jabo Starks, keeps Maceo Park, Maceo Parker and the, and the rest of the crew, but puts out Cold Sweat and really ups the ante for a whole new musical form. Well, he, he'd been working towards that. I mean, God only knows what James's vision was about. But he, he heard stuff and... and tried to figure out how it worked. Uh, I think a big influence was a, a band in uh, Phoenix, Arizona, of all places, um, called um, Dyke and the Blazers. Uh, Arlster Dyke Christian was a, uh, a vocalist who uh, attached himself to a band that had, uh, from Buffalo, that had been stranded in Phoenix by the OJs, who uh, had not yet become famous. And... Um, the uh, the blue blazers as they called them themselves uh, and, and Dyke got along very well and and his the the um, the music he was playing was or they were playing was unlike anything anybody was doing it's said that um, James Brown did not fear much but he really didn't like sharing stage with Dyke and the Blazers. And let's hear their uh, hit, Funky Broadway. This is Dyke and the Blazers.
that was Doc and the Blazers putting the word funk into a lot of people's vocabulary with funky Broadway. And it wasn't just them and James Brown. I mean, George Clinton and the Parliaments have their first hit. Uh, they moved to Detroit and record I Just Want to Testify. They couldn't get out of Motown, but they did get on a label and get it out there. And Sly, T- Sly Stone in San Francisco is also uh, cutting wax and, and staking out, planting his flag and the funk stakes. Right. This was clearly the new way of thinking that uh, had, had emerged. And, and a lot of uh, a lot of bands, the Ohio Untouchable, Untouchables um, was a, a band that recorded a lot. They were from Dayton, but they recorded a lot in Detroit. And I think they influenced a lot of the, the thinking um, after they changed their name to the Ohio Players. But... Um, you know, th- this was all an underground. There were a lot of undergrounds happening in 1967, and this was one of them. Absolutely. And and there's an attempt organized out of Los Angeles, a pretty successful attempt to bring several of those underground scenes from around the globe into the pop spotlight. And it started by John Phillips of the Mamas of the Papas and Lou Adler, a record company man, uh, with help from people like Andrew LeGoldham, the manager of the Stones, and they had people like Smokey Robinson nominally helping and Paul McCartney as well, although it's up in the air how much those guys helped. But they put together this first of the great 60s rock festivals, the Monterey Pop. Yeah, it was probably the, the only one that uh, stood to make money because it had actual plan behind it. And one of stock did not. Yeah, and one of the plans was, you know, severely underpaying the promoters or performers, which at least that that's one of the reasons Motown didn't have anybody. But Stax did send Otis Redding, who'd been working on the West Coast for a while, you know, playing at the Whiskey Go Go. He'd played the Fillmore. And uh Otis and the Booker T and the MGs end up owning the festival. Well, that was one of the things that yes, definitely. Although Big Brother and the Holding Company was another another find at the, the place. As you know, as Jim Marshall told me, he said the action wasn't on the stage; it was in the bar with all the record company guys. And <laughs> um, there was a, a great a lot of truth in that. So, um, yeah, the, the the thing was that Stax was sort of jealous of Motown's ability to make pop records, to get into the top 40 and sell to white kids. There were a lot more white kids than there were black kids. And they sort of thought that this this young guy, I mean, Otis Otis was only 26 when he died. Um, they wanted they wanted at that market and they thought Otis was their, their main chance at it. So they agreed to send him to, uh, to Monterey. And, and he and, absolutely blew the doors off, but like you said, Janis Joplin has her big breakthrough with Big Brother and the Holding Company as well. Yeah, they, she had just joined um, what had been a uh, all-male band that the Alban Brothers had been putting together there on the, in the Haight-Ashbury, and um, her her performance just, you know, peeled the paint off of, off of everybody's ears. It just was... Nobody had heard anything like that before, and it was a very good performance, as it must be said. Um, and got her band signed to Columbia, where Clive Davis uh, has just taken over, and they break through. But also, two groups from England come over, and 
after a fight about who's going to have to follow the other, uh, both The Who and Jimi Hendrix set the stage on fire. <laughs> yeah, I mean, The Who had not been able to sell records. There were too many British bands, and nobody in the business had ears to be able to tell who was worthy and who was not. And um, Hendrix was actually playing American music, but in a, in a, well, with British musicians and the who were a hundred percent British. So um, these, these were highly anticipated uh, acts at the, at Monterey. People had heard that these, these acts were great, but they'd never had the chance to experience them live, let alone um, be able to, um, to hear them on the radio, and that was about to change. That's one of the things that Monterey did. Another thing that was um, that can't be discounted was that um, somebody had the brains to ask um, that the, the festival be filmed, and Monterey Pop came out of that, uh, which is still a very watchable movie to this day and uh, has many things to uh, recommend it. Uh, not least the performances, but also some of the stuff around the edges. Um, Absolutely. I like the quote that you uh, speak, that you cover in the book from a fan who uh, <laughs> describes the um, emergence of all these new bands. And she does this sort of fairly elegant summary of, of how, uh, you know, old bands fade and new bands form and then hesitates and, and, says, you know, then you get all this um, bullshit <laughs> when, when the bands yeah. break. And, and that kind of sums it up. And even though this is a big success for the record industry and in that they, you know, they break Otis right into a white audience, he's going to follow that up, um, you know, with a massive hit single later in the year. Uh, Janis Joplin signs to Columbia with Big Brother and the Holding Company and is going to put out a massive album in 68. The Who finally breaks through in the States with their first big hit single in the U.S. I can see for miles after this, Jimi Hendrix breaks it wide open and sells enormous units in 67, 68 after this. But not every group uh, that's that's in, embraced by the record company succeeds. Like one of San Francisco's best bands is Moby Grape. I mean, an incredibly talented band featuring five singer-songwriters. They're uh, tight as all get out with three guitar players who know perfectly how to complement each other and not get in each other's way. And yet everything goes pear-shaped from their manager's decision to prevent them from uh, being in the Monterey Pop movie, which forces them to be moved from a headlining slot to an opening slot in the festival, to... Clive Davis's incredibly dumbass decision to release five singles at one time. Right, which was, in fact, the entire album, you know, which had 10 songs on it. It, it was, the, the, the Moby Grape was probably the unluckiest band from this era that I can't think of anybody else. They had this huge release for the, uh, for the album, this party, and the band ran off with a couple of teenage girls and got busted smoking pot in the back of their van. And, uh, I mean, all the, you know, the, the, this, this party and, and too many records and, uh, it just, it really didn't work. And, and it's a shame because as you say, they, they were one of the most incredible bands from this era and they're 
still very little known. Yeah. And another band that was incredible and having big hits in 65, 66, everything goes wrong for them uh, in San Francisco around this time. And I'm talking about the Love and Spoonful who get a pot arrest that, that goes as wrong as you can go. Right. The, the Spoonful was interesting because they were the only successful band in this era from um, New York City. New York prevented itself from having a decent rock scene by the, their cabaret uh, licensing laws, where you had to have a cabaret card in order to play any place that served alcohol. And um, somehow the Spoonful uh, was able to play uh, the uh, the Night Owl, which was a coffee house on um, in Greenwich Village and got signed to um, Kama Sutra Records because of that. And also because I think their connections once again, this is a, a band that came together because of Mama Cass uh, from the Mamas and Papas, who was the, the great sal- Salonist of, um, of the folky movement. And so, um, well, I mean, not denying that the Spoonful had, had uh, great songwriters and were able to play their instruments. But, uh, yeah, they, uh, they had their little run-in with the law in San Francisco, a boycott movement spread through the... Um, because they snitched. Under- what? They snitched, so the, the underground saw them as, as traitors. Right, and they eventually cleared, cleared some of that up, but uh, it, it killed the band, and the band broke up. John Sebastian, their lead singer, had to play out the contract with MGM and simultaneously signed to Warner Brothers, released a very good album, but the exact same album came out on two different labels and people didn't know what they were buying. I mean, it's the same cover and everything. So um, once again, another piece of bad luck. Yeah. And then one other San Francisco band that, that played at Monterey and never really realized their potential was the electric flag, which Michael Bloomfield uh, had put together, you know, rolling out of the Paul Butterfield blues band coming off of recording with Bob Dylan. There's massive anticipation for what he's going to do next. He recruits a really charismatic drummer away from Wilson Pickett and Buddy Miles. So you've got this integrated band that can, their goal is to do all of American music. They've got a horn section, so they're going to essay jazz and soul as well as blues and rock and they hint at it, but also collapse, and, and hard drugs plays a big role in their undoing. Yeah, I mean, you know, as Nick Gravenites told me, you know, it was, it was the acid heads versus the junkies in, in the electric flag, <laughs> and it was clearly work. Um, and, and also, Buddy Miles was pretty uncontrollable because anybody who's thrust into rock stardom uh, at that level, at that age, that wasn't going to work either. Um, and, and Michael had these kind of folky-based, purest ideas of what American music was, and the rest of the band couldn't quite see it that way. And so a lot of unrealized potential. But meanwhile, in the South, there's a weird scene coming up where or multiple scenes in the South among white poppers um, where the studio system 
actually works and sneaks through some really interesting stuff. I'm thinking, of course, of the box tops with the young Alex Chilton who have a massive hit with the letter. And also John Fred and his Playboy band who've been playing along the Gulf Coast for years and come out with a single that could only break through in 1967, and that's Judy in Disguise. And let's hear it, and then we'll talk about it. This is John Fred and his Playboy band with Judy in Disguise. And that was John Fred and his Playboy band with Judy in Disguise. And tell us a little bit about that. And what was going on in 67 in the South that 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 band could break through with that song? Well, Bluefield's idea of a band with horns was hardly unique, but he knew nothing about what was going on in the South. Um, Louisiana and East Texas had always had what they call show bands, you know, and... um, they had horn sections and and a rock band and, and it was the, the, there was a whole touring circuit for them and John John Fred was uh, one of those one of those people who's on that scene. John Fred and Playboys were were you know fairly big deal. And and yeah, and they're worth investigating. There's a lot more fun stuff uh, in their discography yeah. than just just they're not a one hit wonder and definitely not a garage or a punk band. I mean, these guys could play and play well and and do fun stuff. And speaking of fun stuff, the monkeys are still around, but they're not happy being the monkeys anymore and actually hold a mutiny and force the Don Kirshner and the record company to let them play on their own album. Yeah. Imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> but it kind of messes up the formula. I mean, they put out a pretty respectable well, album. It does mess up the formula because they had become a band. They were, they were not just for actors who could play instruments who showed up and won an audition anymore. They were really a band. They had to tour. They had to rehearse. And, you know, Michael Nesmith had all, always been writing songs. Back when he was on the folky circuit in L.A. as Michael Blessing, he... Um, he knew that he had material that he wanted to perform and maybe the other guys could back him up. Um, and I'm, I'm sure Davy Jones was thinking in those terms too, because he was a, a seasoned showbiz professional. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So that, that's why I, that's why the monkeys wound up making those weird records and the weird movie. Yeah, and and ultimately, uh, you know, burn up the string. Although I don't know that the TV show would have lasted much longer than it did anyway. I mean, Batman was another you know massive hit in 1966 that was basically history by early '67. And meanwhile, I'm back in England. The Beatles have a massive tragedy when their manager Brian Epstein dies just as they're going off to meet uh, George Harrison's new guru, the Maharishi in Wales. Right. They actually had had. Uh done that and and they received the the message about Brian's death while they were on the um the retreat or whatever it was uh 
they didn't handle it too well, but I think they were maybe a little shocked by what had happened. Um, and it's it left them pretty rudderless because they had Brian had made some very good decisions in terms of their career, and now he wasn't there anymore. So it probably contributed to the end of the Beatles. Absolutely. I, th- I think there's no doubt. And, you know, I mean, Brian Epstein takes a lot of heat because of the publishing deal that they signed, which actually to me, and, you know, Mark Lewison insists that in terms of 1963 for a group that had no track record, they got one of the best publishing deals, you know, pop- you could possibly get from their second single. They had their own publishing company that they own, you know, 40% of, which is pretty exceptional for the time. You know, he did sign away their merchandising rights, absolutely got fleeced on that one. And that was gazillions of dollars that, that they slipped away. But otherwise, well, you know, like everybody else, this he was inventing things as he went along. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. I, the publishing great idea. The merchandising thing was not a great idea. <laughs> no, but the main thing about Brian Epstein is he cared about the Beatles dearly and, and insulated them uh, from the worst aspects of the business and gave them latitude to create. They were never in a Colonel Parker album of a situation where they're being pressured to do the commercial thing and take the short-term money, Epstein always let them follow their muse, and you know they really are going to miss him in the future. And meanwhile, Alan Klein is you know gone from running Sam Cooke's career and somehow ends up owning all of Sam Cooke's catalog. And then he's in England, you know, signing up Donovan and the Animals and the Rolling Stones, and he's coming for the Beatles. And he's learning uh, British and American tax law. Yes. Very, very important. <laughs> and and giving the record company executives some painful lessons in, in those matters. And, and you know, I think to round it up, the, there's a really horrific tragedy at the end of the year. And one of the brightest uh, hopes of American music uh, goes down in a lake outside Cleveland. And that's Otis Redding, 26. Nobody has ever really explained that, but yeah, Otis Redding and members of the Barkays were um, flying to a gig in, in uh, Wisconsin, and uh, somehow the plane plunged into the into a lake uh, as it was coming in to make a landing, and everybody died. Well, not everybody. Um, most everybody died. A couple of the uh, Barkays survived and, and uh, were able to make a career in later years using that name. But um, yeah, Otis Redding was gone. Um, the future Stax record did not look, look good because they had in fact broken him to the white audience and then suddenly he wasn't there anymore. Yeah, and meanwhile, and, uh, Atlantic Records uh, absconds with their back catalog, and they discovered that the handshake deal they'd signed, you know, the paper they'd put behind their handshake deal with Jerry Wexler was an atrocious deal that took their whole catalog away. And so, but we'll we'll talk about how Stax recovers and how Bob Dylan uh, and, and the band's response to Sgt. Peppers and all that in, in the next episode of Let It Roll when we return to Ed's book, The History of Rock and Roll, Volume 2, 1964 to 1977. Final thoughts, Ed? Um, no, I had fun. <laughs> cool. Likewise, we'll be back. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast 
and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com. Next week, Ed Ward will be back to talk about 1968, the year of riots and revolution, the year of newcomers like Led Zeppelin and Sly and the Family Stone and the band, who all led a musical counter-revolution. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. History of Rock and Roll, Volume 2, 1964 to 1977, The Beatles, The Stones, and The Rise of Classic Rock is published by Flatiron Books. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com. My name is Damone Carter, a.k.a. Dem One. And I'm Nate LeBlanc. And we are two-thirds of the crew that hosts the Dad Bod Rap Pod. Our third co-host is internationally acclaimed hip-hop writer David Ma. As the name of the show suggests, Dad Bod Rap Pod is a podcast where men of a certain age discuss, debate, and dissect rap music. While we are somewhat classicist in our tastes and grew up listening to hip-hop from the 80s until now, we are also interested in the music's present and future. Over the past 115 episodes, we have interviewed rap legends like Prince Paul, Del the Funky Homo Sapien, Roxanne Shante, Cool Keith, DJ Premier, and even the proto-rap group The Last Poets, just to name a few. We also make it a point to talk to writers, commentators, and creatives shaping the genre. We've interviewed journalists and best-selling authors like Nathaniel Friedman, Jeff Weiss, Hanif Abdul-Rakib, and Adam Mansbach. And as Nate mentioned, even though we are products of the 80s, 90s, we take time out to talk to some of the most important voices in rap today. Groups and individuals like Little Brother, Open Mike Eagle, Billy Woods, and Rap Ferrer. If you don't recognize any of those names, that's okay, because what we love most on this podcast is to introduce old school fans of rap music to new music that we know you will love. New episodes every week on Thursday. We are the Dad Bod Rap Pod. Liquid bleach, liquid bleach, Clorox makes clothes bright. But what about these cloudy wine glasses? Add glass cleaner to my cart. Adding Clorox disinfecting bleach to your cart. What? No, for glassware. Clorox can also make glassware sparkle, keep flowers fresh, and remove chocolate, wine, all your usual stains. Rude. Clean anything with the versatile Clorox disinfecting bleach. Discover more hacks at Clorox.com learn. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. 
and why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.